Paxton Quigley is rolling out the green carpet, talking to the creme de la creme of innovators and influencers who are shaping the world of cannabis and culture. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Folks, today is Earth Day, and there is no better way to reflect at all the ways that hemp can benefit our planet. And we're going to talk to uh, a a well-known person in the in the hemp business and we're going to talk about the burgeoning hemp industry and where it's headed and we're going to learn more about how versatile hemp is as a as a manufacturing product and therefore how beneficial it is for the environment so to discuss the benefits of of hemp and tell us more about the industry in the US as well as abroad I'm really interested in what's happening abroad we are happy to have Robert Hoban with us today. Now, Mr. Hoban is chairman of Hoban Law Group. It happens to be the world's leading cannabis and hemp industry law firm. And the Hoban Group is also involved in social equity licensing programs and has represented people with pot possession convictions. And Robert is the official cannabis writer for Forbes magazine. And his column is literally read by thousands of people, and I'm one of them too. Additionally, he is the nation's first cannabis policy instructor at the University of Denver. Attorney Robert Hoban, welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. Well, Paxton, thank you so much for having me. Uh, And it is Earth Day, so uh, as you point out, what a great topic to talk about on this day, uh, April 22nd. Yes, and I didn't realize it was Earth Day until my, my producer said, hey, are we lucky to <laughs> have both together? So uh, the stars have lined up for us today, Robert. Uh, now, I can't say that I've read all of your articles in Forbes, but I'm, I'm certainly getting an education, and, and thank you for that. And I do understand that you are known as the guru of hemp. I don't know who gave you that title. but uh, yeah, the, so, Some people do call me Hemp Hoban for what it's worth. But, uh, oh, I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so at, at the end of the day, you know, uh, in, in a nutshell, um, I, I started working in the cannabis industry um, around 2007, 2008, working with uh, commercial businesses uh, in light of the fact that my mother was sick with pancreatic cancer. So beginning to source medicinal cannabis for her, and I began to represent, I represented some of the first dispensaries in Denver. And then we took that show on the road as we grew our law firm and opened up marijuana businesses all over the country. Um, Beginning in 2010, uh, somebody called me, a good friend, and said, uh, have you heard of something called CBD? And I said, uh, I believe it's a cannabinoid, but I don't know anything about it. And uh, we did some research and uh, we began to represent the first two large scale commercial companies in the country uh, that were all under one roof at that point in time, headquartered in San Diego, California. And uh, they became some of the biggest CBD companies in the world. They still exist today based on strategies that we developed. So that was our transition away from the marijuana side of the cannabis industry into the hemp side of the cannabis industry. And since that point in time, uh, we've been involved in so many other uses of the plant, the cannabis plant as a whole. We, we sort of refer to it as the green buffalo because you can use it for so many different things. And uh, that's where hemp comes in, especially on a day like today. Yes. By the way, was it difficult to find uh, uh, people in the legal industry 
lawyers to, to come on board? Well, so I, I hand selected at least my initial round of attorneys as we grew this law firm. In Denver, it wasn't difficult. We were able to build up to about 10 lawyers in this office many, many, many years ago, over a decade ago, 12 years ago, in fact. Um, as I started to go outside of the state of Colorado, California, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was easy to find lawyers that at least looked at this in the same way that we did as a commercial opportunity, uh, something that wasn't illicit. As we started to expand internationally, however, when we would call law firms in European countries or across Latin America, and we'd talk to lawyers and we'd say, uh, would you like to consider joining our law firm? We need somebody that has expertise in contracts or uh, capital raise in your neck of the woods. What we do is cannabis. They say, oh, that's illegal. I don't want anything to talk about it. So so it'd be, it was a challenge. Now, just one other quick note. Ethically speaking, rules by which all lawyers uh, are governed, it's still not a done deal state by state by state across the U.S. whether you can practice in this area. Colorado's thankfully clarified it. So that was another place that we met some pushback, but uh, interesting problems, lawyer problems. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, we found a great group of initial uh, attorneys and we've just built upon that. Uh, good people find good people somehow, some way. Oh, good, good. I was going to ask you, how many women do you have in your firm? <laughs> We're very strong with women. Um, we've got, uh, in fact, our, our entire administrative and executive team is, is, is female-led. Um, our attorneys, uh, I'd say we're about 33% uh, female attorneys at this point in time uh, and, and sort of growing uh, those ranks. And what we've found, too, is uh, the practice of law has not always been uh, uh, very kind to female attorneys, uh, because of the fact that older attorneys tend to be set in their ways. Uh, it's a very conservative practice uh, or, or, or profession, so to speak. And so women aren't always treated the way that they deserve to be treated in most traditional law firms. So we've always been there to sort of catch those rising stars from other bigger firms uh, because that's not the culture of our environment. And uh, they've, they've thrived uh, in our environment, I'm proud to say. Well, that certainly is, is nice to hear. So I, I'm happy about that. Now, um, can you t give us kind of a rundown in what's happening in the hemp industry in the United States? Uh, where is it going? Um, and I, I understand that uh, there even has to be a ramp up in terms of hemp cultivation. So can you give us a, a rundown about that? Yeah. And then particularly talk about one of the uh, uh, products of hemp, which is hempcrete, which is hempcrete, construction to, you know, to combat uh, global warming, because that's quite fantastic. No, that, that's a that's a great question, Paxton. Thank you for asking. So I'll take you on a little journey, a short journey back to around 2012, around 2000. 10 to 2012, we started to see the first companies in the U.S. begin to identify uh, CBD as a product that they wanted to sell. That was the hemp industry in those days. Now, I don't want to uh, forget about the fact that hemp um, was a top cash crop in the United States up until the 1930s. Uh, it was reinvigorated in the 1940s with a hemp for victory war campaign to supply materials for our U.S. military. Um, and you could even pay taxes in industrial hemp uh, many, 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 many years ago. Um, but uh, from that point in time, 1930s, the uh, the the marijuana plant and the hemp plant, the cannabis plant as a whole was, was effectively uh, criminalized. And so you could no longer grow 
industrial hemp in the United States, again, with these limited exceptions for war in the 1940s, et cetera. So the products that came from hemp were all imported, hemp foods, hemp seed oil, hemp seeds, hemp oil, other hemp foods, uh, fibers, um, you know, the herd materials of the plant. Now, fast forward to 2014, when the Obama administration had enacted the Farm Bill, which for the first time ever, the first time ever, it defined industrial hemp under U.S. law as a cannabis plant with below 0.3% THC. So that's where um, things started to really get interesting. So as we had this definition, it was a research program, but it was a research for market conditions. So you started to see companies get very aggressive with that CBD product, importing it mostly from other countries and refining it. Uh, we saw that before 2014, but then 2014, we, saw, we started to see acreage being planted. Now, the market just just exploded from there. We had a very good result in a case against the DEA in 2018. And in that case, the court determined that the 2014 Farm Bill allowed for commercial activity and that hemp was not marijuana and that CBD was not a controlled substance if it was derived from the industrial hemp plant. So then that caused the market to spike even further. That also caused farmers to grow more and more hemp, more hemp than we could ever use, more hemp than it can ever be processed into CBD and sold. So my point is 2018 rolled around and all of these research restrictions were, were lifted. But by 2018 and 2019, we had far too many hemp farmers that had failed because they all thought growing hemp was going to get them rich. And the market just wasn't there from regulated outlets for distribution. The market became saturated with CBD. 2018 Farm Bill comes around and it says, let's put a focus on the entire plant. Let's move away from a single purpose CBD crop and let's use hemp for the 50,000 uses that it can be uh, uh, maximized for. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing farmers go out and not just plant these feminized hemp crops for CBD only. We're seeing them plant densely planted row crops of hundreds of thousands of acres of hemp around the world and in the US to be used for grain and for fiber and for herd and for cell cellulose and for lignin and for sugar to produce graphene, to produce the building blocks for plastics and fuels. Then what you have left, if you do it correctly, is a waste product. That waste product is cannabinoids. That waste product is terpenes. If you maximize and build your business plan that way, then you have a sustainable business for a farmer. And so that leads us to some of those, those interesting uses that we're seeing today. Now you mentioned hempcrete. Hempcrete is a uh, IP protected term of a specific product, but the point is well taken. You take the herd from the plant, meaning the wood, the inside of the stock, which has a number of- about like the, st the stock itself? So you take the stalk. So, so think of the plant, uh, think of a tall 10 foot hemp plant on the top of that plant, it will express the leaves and, and flowers. Sometimes the flowers are very dense. Sometimes they're, they're not particularly dense. That's where the cannabinoids are very rich or present, or that's where the seeds uh, would grow. Below that top two, three feet of the plant, you've got a long slender stalk. Oftentimes that's a, it's, it's a, it's slender, but it's thick nonetheless. So Around the outside, you've got fiber. So that fiber needs to be removed. It needs to be decorticated um, 
for fiber uses. And the long fibers from industrial hemp are great for textiles and they're extremely strong. The short fibers are used for industrial uses like door paneling, uh, uh, things of that nature. But in the inside, you've got this herd. The herd, think of it like wood chips. Think of it like the wafer board that you would see if you buy a piece of plywood. Um, that herd can be bound uh, with proprietary binders. Uh, all natural oftentimes, sometimes it's lime, sometimes it's other similar type compounds. And you create a form and you start to pour uh, the herd mixed with the lime in it and it dries. And when it dries, you've got something that's impenetrable largely. It, it's, it's largely fire retardant. You'd have to get up to thousands of degrees for it to burn. Um, it maintains pressure. It maintains Let's stop real quick. Uh, I don't know whose indicator that is. I think, Bob, you might have your uh, mail notification come out because every time it hits, it comes in loud. Okay. Yeah. I will. Uh, I will. I will. All right. Good. We're good. We're back. Should we go back? Should we go back? Um, yeah. If you want to just go back uh, about 20 seconds where you were. Uh, sure. Go back to when you were discussing hempcrete. That you okay. brought, I'm glad you brought it up, Paxton, about hempcrete. Go back to there. Okay. No, actually, Paxton, I'll let Bob go ahead and answer at that point. We'll just let him continue his answer from there. Okay. Bob, I've... Well, no, no, no. I want Bob to go ahead and answer. Let Bob go ahead and continue his answer. Okay. 10 seconds and then begin. Thank you so much, Bob. So... So then that, that hempcrete, that, 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 that herd with that binder material hardens and creates a, a, uh, a structural component, uh, creates a, effectively a concrete block made with industrial hemp. It, it is uh, it's largely um, fire retardant. You'd have to have thousands of degrees of heat for it to be impacted. In other words, it doesn't easily catch on fire. Uh, it maintains temperature and pressure within uh, buildings and within facilities in which uh, 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 on the end. And, and here's another interesting thing. It prevents Wi-Fi from going in and out of that particular room. That may not sound convenient, but there are people that don't want those types of waves coming into their living space for a variety of reasons. So the hempcrete notion and the building materials that can be derived from the herd of the plant are extremely beneficial and useful and easy to come by. Because again, when you're growing thousands and thousands of acres of a product and you can monetize and maximize the waste product, throw cannabinoids out there as a waste product, but throw the herd as a waste product as well. That can be used in so many different applications, not the least of which is that hempcrete that we talked about. Now, I've also read that it absorbs and it can store carbon and then actually removes it from the air. I mean, to me, that sounds like magic. Can you can you explain that? I mean, that's 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 wonderful in terms of, you know, our environment now and which is becoming worse and worse. Sure. And, and, you know, on Earth Day, what a better thing to talk about than carbon capture. So the hemp plant has been scientifically proven um, to sequester, to remove carbon dioxide from the air in a, in a manner that's mo- much more efficient than other plants. All plants, of course, thrive on carbon dioxide, but the hemp plant is especially good at this. So then when you take the carbon out of the air and you put, put it inside the plant, that's the first phase of that carbon capture. The second phase is then can you monetize, can you use that plant, remove it from the ground in a way where you're taking that, car- that, that carbon 
and not just setting the plant material on fire and re-releasing it all into the air, but using it for a beneficial purpose. A great example, that's the herd for the concrete or plywood or door paneling or the like. So if you can complete that cycle, then you can ultimately qualify for carbon credits. And the Biden administration in particular is driving the notion of carbon capture from regenerative farming and otherwise. So it's a very exciting thing. And as you point out, it's a critical thing because if we don't continue to remove carbon from the air and be focused on that, then we're going to have a, a, a planet that gets warmer and warmer year after year and that's what, unfortunately, what we've seen over the last, you know, several decades. Can Can you tell me how many uh, houses or buildings are using uh, Crete now? Well, so so uh, there there are statistics. Well, I, I, I can't point to a specific number, but I can tell you anecdotally, and I've traveled around the world for the last six years, uh, including during during COVID. Um, the 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 hemp based building materials are used across Europe in very interesting dome houses, um, very interesting storage barns, grain barns, um, industrial facilities and homes. We're starting to see that happen across Mexico and across Latin America because it is a low cost building material um, uh, and it's very sturdy and, and structure, structural integrity is second to none, but also across the United States. But it happens different in the United States when something is a new technology and it's costly, even though technically it's. It's not costly because it's simply plant material. Where do those things go? It goes to the Boulder, Colorados of the world and the San Francisco's of the world. And wealthy people begin to build homes or outposts or garages with this material. And that's the largest use that we see across the United States right now. There are some niche uses. We see these tiny hemp homes. We see uh, the dome houses, as I mentioned, beginning in, in Ukraine. And we're seeing that as across Southern California with a with a great company called Hempire. Uh, uh, and, and, and a great uh, friend of ours that, that builds those homes. But increasingly, hempcrete is available uh, and the hemp building materials are available. Um, you just have to find a hemp farmer that has a bunch of waste and make the deal in advance because then the hemp farmer will grow that for you or preserve that for you in whatever form you want for post-use. Interesting. Now, in terms of other areas of manufacturing, uh, well, and actually not manufacturing, how is it going to change the medical arena? Well, so I, I always have taken the position that industrial hemp is truly the backbone of the global cannabis supply chain. Yes, the entire cannabis supply chain. Why? Because if you grow hundreds of thousands of a plant, of acres of a plant, and and that's what's happening right now, and that plant plant contains and produces cannabinoids, and you aggregate those cannabinoids, then you have more than you need of a cannabinoid supply to satisfy the demands of Pfizer and other research institutions around the world. And you're going to say, Bob, but these plants only have 0.3% or below THC. And we know we need THC for a variety of medical conditions. And I'm here to tell you that if you have 100 acres of industrial hemp, every acre produces between 10 and 12 metric tons of biomass. If 0.3% of that biomass is THC, forgetting about all the other non-intoxicating compounds, and you multiply that by 100 acres, let alone hundreds of thousands of acres, 
The technical term is that is a boatload of THC. That's enough THC to satisfy the current needs, the current needs of every global use of cannabinoids for scientific and medical uses around the planet. Now, that doesn't serve the population that likes to consume cannabis in a flower or an oil format that requires heavy concentrations, but it does satisfy the global scientific and medical need. And we're seeing more and more people look at the plant holistically and using all parts of it for that purpose purpose. Let me give you an example. There's a company that we work for. That company produces 5,000 acres of industrial hemp in the United States. They take that industrial hemp and produce that into an isolate of non-intoxicating cannabinoids. They ship that isolate to a country where THC exports are allowed. They turn all of the non-intoxicating cannabinoids into Delta 9 THC. So it becomes the purest, lowest cost THC on the planet and it's made in the USA and it's 100% legal. So that is something that's happening all around us right now. And that doesn't rely on the so-called marijuana plant. Now, it's the cannabis plant as a whole and all the benefits that it gives us is, is, is able to, we're able to maximize those uses. But of course, marijuana is important. It's more efficient at producing higher THC content, but it's not necessary when you look at it from a global supply chain perspective. Not saying that THC is not required for scientific purposes, we know it is, but I'm talking about in the aggregate, when you're simply isolating all the compounds of a plant into individual buckets and selling those as commodities, that's where the future, because that's the past. That's what happens with every other plant-based extract on the planet. Now, I understand that uh, Congressman Rand Paul's got a bill pending, uh, and he wants to raise the TH content in, in hemp from 03 to 1%. One, why, why is he doing that? Uh, I think I don't have to, re you don't really have to answer that. You've, you've already done that. Um, but uh, how will that af affect the, the hemp-based products that we have now on the market? Will that, will that change uh, the whole dynamics well, so that goes through? So Rand Paul's from the great state of Kentucky and Kentucky, of course, has a rich history with the cannabis plant, with uh, industrial hemp in particular. Um, and what hemp farmers have complained of is it's very difficult to stay under the 0.3 percentage threshold and produce cannabinoid products. So other countries around the world have led the way and, and raised that THC percentage to 1%. OK, it's far more it's far easier for farmers to remain compliant with a one percent than it is a 0.3 percent if you're growing for cannabinoids, because if you take regional variations and you put a plant that does under 0.3 percent in North America and you put it into Latin America, for example, uh, that tropical environment will cause it to ex express higher levels of THC. So what will this have, what will do in the U.S.? Well, if that passes, and I say if, because I don't think that that's a done deal. If that passes- And why do you say that? Because ultimately, I, I want what farmers want, and farmers want a higher THC percentage. But I can tell you, because I work all around the world, that the 0.3% standard gives the U.S. a competitive advantage. Because if I grow 1% THC hemp in Colombia and create a CBD extract or any sort of extract, that's produced from marijuana under federal law and cannot and should not come into the United States. More importantly, we're the United States. We have infrastructure. We have technology. We can squeeze as much juice out of that plant as anybody else on the planet with that know-how, with that farming, with that technology at the 0.3%.
So it gives us an advantage in the United States and allows us to control our own market for the short term in terms of where cannabinoids are produced and put into products. And we haven't even seen the great uses of cannabinoids yet because the the um, the FDA, when their regulations come around, you're going to see a second and third round of CBD as an ingredient in every single product you can imagine from beverages to candy bars and on down the road. But not just online, not just in health food stores, in every store, in every state. And that's when the supply and demand is really critical. So that's why I say it's not a done deal yet, because policymakers recognize that the 0.3%, while arbitrary and while difficult for some farmers, actually creates a competitive advantage for the U.S. Um, so that's what's going to shake out. 1% would make it far more efficient to produce cannabinoids. But we're, be, we're continuing to potentially propagate this myth for farmers that if you grow a single-purpose crop for cannabinoids only, that you're going to be able to feed your family. And we've seen over the last several years, that's not the case. Not until the FDA regulations open up more regulated outlets, until there's more mainstream companies that put these products in more shelf space for those products. I hope that makes sense. It makes sense. And it sounds like uh, all of us who are listening to you should uh, start investing in, in some uh, hemp uh, uh, products like today, some hemp companies. Would you say that? No, I, I, I would say that, but there are a number of great companies out there that are looking at the plant as a whole. And I, again, monetizing all parts of the plant. The days of just growing a single purpose plant that's high in CBD, for example, for cannabinoid use only, they're not over but they're not the best use of your investment dollars and not the best use of business resources at this time, because we need to get the farmer protected and made whole for the industry to really take off. And the only way that the farmer can be made whole is if that farmer has a stable and consistent crop that can be utilized in multiple different industries, not just for cannabinoid extracts. So that means also people should buy land then uh, and start growing it, <laughs> not just in their backyard, but buy acres of it. Well said. Well said. Well, I, I thank you. And I hope all of our listeners are, are listening to that. Uh, one final question. Can you tell us about the Growing Climate Solutions Act, what that's all about and how that affects uh, cannabis? Well, I, I understand the concept behind the act. I don't know all of the details, um, but I can tell you that at the end of the day, it goes back to that carbon capture uh, concept that we talked about earlier. It's about growing crops that can not only remove carbon from the atmosphere, but that can also remediate the soil. Did you know that hemp also, within two seasons of cultivation, can effectively clean a contaminated soil site? So we've seen this around the world in um, places where there's been chemical spills. Uh, and interestingly enough, in places like Colombia, where the U.S. government subsidizes the, the Colombian government to spray poison on illicit coca crops, which then poisons the soil. So those farmers have come around and said, well, let's grow hemp for a couple of seasons and clean that soil up. And then what happens with that soil after that is anybody's guess. But my point to you is that it's those components of cleaning the soil, removing carbon from the air and having a plant that is sustainable, easy to grow, that doesn't use as much water as some of our other bumper crops, that and those are the principles behind that act. Uh, and we will see that continue to be 
um, uh, stressed and enforced because we have to. We can't continue to subsidize farmers to grow things that don't produce a, a wide scale benefit in the United States, uh, particularly with dwindling water supplies. How come the general media isn't is, isn't talking about uh, this issue, or is it, or is it left to a person like you uh, that writes for Forbes to do so? Well, you have to. Well, I can tell you anecdotally when I write a piece about marijuana, uh, and you know, again, using the legal term, marijuana versus industrial hemp, um, you get tens of thousands of views. When you write a piece about hemp, you get a few thousand views, depending on the issue. Um, and that's indicative of the education of our, our population, to your point. Not everybody knows about hemp. Some people don't understand that it's different than marijuana. Some people think of hemp as, oh, you know, remember that patchouli-wearing girlfriend I had in, you know, in, in, in 1975, um, and she wore hemp clothing. It really, I'm making an exaggeration to illustrate a point that the, 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 the uses of hemp are looked at by some people as, you've got to be kidding me. If that plant's really so great, then how come everybody on earth's not using it for all these purpose, purposes? And the answer really is because of the, the criminalization of the entire cannabis plant um, and the fact that other countries had to fall in line with the United States because of the UN Convention and because of our Controlled Substances Act and because the US is such a global commerce leader that if you went out and, and, and began to use hemp and or the entire cannabis plant for a variety of purposes, it wouldn't gain you any favor with the US government or US business people. I was on the phone with, with Google representatives talking about how Google could potentially examine a hemp marketplace, so forth and so on. And these are extremely well-educated, extremely smart people. And they didn't know the difference between hemp and marijuana. They didn't under, when I told them about making hemp into fuel and that hemp was the original ethanol, the basis for the, they thought I was crazy. So my point to you is it's all about education. It's all about um, uh, growing the amount of farmers that, that actually cultivate the plant uh, because right now it's just a cottage industry. We're talking about, you know, maybe, maybe between a hundred and 200,000 acres in the United States. Um, there are millions of acres of corn. There are millions of acres of wheat. Uh, it's still very, very small, and it will continue to grow, figured in literally, but it will also continue to gain attention and attraction once the infrastructure can support all of these 50,000 uses of one plant across the United States. And that's when things start to really get spicy. Robert, I wish we had time to talk some more because you, you just have a fountain of information and it's such important information. And um, frankly speaking, we, we'd love to have you back on in a couple of months and, uh, and have this discussion again. And by then, hopefully, we'll, we'll have even more information that you can tell our, our, our audience because I think people need to know what's going on in the hemp world and how wonderful hemp is rather than, as you say, you know, that people look down upon it. Let's let's look up to it. So uh, I, I thank you very much. And why don't you give out your website so that people can go ahead and and uh, find more about your your law firm? Please well, give that. Yes, Paxson, thank you. And, and uh, the website is www.hoban, H-O-B-A-N, dot law. And our sister consulting firm is Gateway Proven Strategies www.gps.global. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'd love to come back. Uh, if you'd have me, we can talk about where things have come since we last spoke. But I also would love to highlight what's happening from a marijuana policy perspective 
perspective around the world. The fact that the country of Mexico, our neighbor to the south, and the pressure that its government will put on our policymakers in the U.S. to legalize cannabis across the country with no restrictions, how that's happening. And it's sort of a reversal of fortune, considering how U.S. drug policy has affected the entire Latin American region for so long. That would be a great thing I'd love to come back and talk about. But okay. again, thank you so much for having us. Uh, well, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk to you very soon and set up another appointment. OK, thank that you so good. much. And uh, I want to thank our audience, too. We look forward to speaking to, to Robert Hogan again in the future. And I hope that you'll um, when you go online to listen to this, if you want, please uh, uh, tell us what you think. Uh, it certainly has been a, a fascinating interview. And uh, by the way, all of our shows can be heard on Apple, Audible, Spotify, Spreaker or wherever you listen to your podcasts including CannabisRadio.com. And I'd also like to thank our listeners who've purchased my latest suspense novel. It's called Just Try Me, and it's available on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. So, listeners, I want to say, stay safe. I should say it again. Stay safe and get vaccinated when your turn comes because we can beat this virus if we work together. I'm Paxton Quigley. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.